Welcome to In Scripture Podcast. We're so glad to have you with us while we dive into Scripture to dissect God's Word verse by verse. Listen with us and don't forget to leave us questions and feedback as we journey through His Word. Hey guys, welcome to another episode of In Scripture. And right now I feel like I feel out of place right now because all three of you guys have these thick beards and I'm sitting here and my face has like no facial hair. That sounds like a you problem. <laughs> it is a problem right now because the longer I think about it, I'm like, man, if we're going to do this together, you know, I'll be praying for you, gonna, Alex. We all got to have beards. That would be a cool podcast is like all beards. I'm pretty sure that's out there somewhere. And Mark can grow a good beard too. I Man. Mm. I'm an outlier. You need to get one of those like aerators for your face. <laughs> Little things that poke holes in there. And then get the lawnmower 4.0. <laughs> your beard will start growing when you buy a good trimmer. Because then it has to. Otherwise, it's a bad investment. Yeah, it's like, yeah, landscaping before your face. Yeah. This stuff's a joke, though, by the way. <laughs> all, all those things are scams. If you're listening to this, this all that stuff is scams. Don't, well, don't waste your money. What about the uh, growth vitamins? That doesn't do nothing. It doesn't? I, I've never tried. I've never had to what take about hair, the- hair follicles or hair follicles. If you got them, you got them. If you don't, you don't. The only thing that really works is like surgical transplants. Like You don't think people mm. who are bald on top of their head have not tried all of this? Why are there still bald people? Because this stuff doesn't work. <laughs> At the I end heard, of the day, it just doesn't. You I know? heard the preventative to balding works. Like if you start balding, it's not, you're not going to get hair there, but you're going to stop balding. I've, I've heard that that does help, but you have to be very careful about, or you have to be very like attentive to start that early rather than later. And then again, like, I don't know. Another reason why like those pills are kind of weird because... But how does your body know where to take those nutrients and push them into hair growth? If it were true, it just like for all you know, it'll just come out your shoulder or something. Yeah, (laughs) exactly. Theory theory debunked. Start growing hair on your back and everything. That's what I'm saying, though. Think about it. Yeah, now that you mentioned, I didn't think about it that way. I was going to just go straight into my chin. (laughs) I mean, I've never had to do that, but yeah. I don't think it works either way, but if it does, you got to be careful of that. I'm the only one in my family that has a beard, though. I don't know about you, Mark, but I'm the only one in my family that has a beard. No, we all grow good beards. Not my dad, my grandparents, not my brother. Only like two of my cousins have beards. All of us have beards, and my mom despises them. Mm. Even your dad? He hates it. He, He always has like a scruff. Okay. He's almost never clean yeah. shaven. My he, dad's always clean. But he's not allowed to like grow it out. Oh, really? Why? My mom hates it. I don't it. know. It's just, what's this thing? He just. Well, Slavic people are weird about that. Like they old are. ones, old ones, <laughs> <laughs> older Slavic <Our> people. Elders. <laughs> they're like, in the Slavic culture, it's like disrespectful. It's dirty. Mm. That's what my mom always told me. She's like, if you walked around in my time with a beard, that's basically the equivalent of being a homeless person. Like uh, you're, you're a bum. In our church. And I'm like, oh, okay, I'm a good looking bum. <laughs> not right now. Not right now. Because I'm not cleared <laughs> up. Growing sideways. And <laughs> no, but I, I remember like in, my, in our church, I was like the first one with a beard like this. And like nobody, nobody, not even, not, well, there's one grandpa that had a beard similar to mine. 
but nobody. And I was made fun of. I was always told, talked down to. It's like, why are you adding eight years to your life? Like, as if I'm making myself look older or something like that. I'm like, no, I just like the beard. It's just the cool thing to have. But but now more people in our youth are starting to grow beards. Well, there's like, w- w- there's a couple of the a couple of the deacons and pastors now. They on a regular basis, they'll, they'll kind of have some facial hair and stuff like that. So I think it's become more normalized in, in your I church. I know of one guy that will ever grow a beard. That's enough. not like a beard beard, but like <laughs> scruff has become more okay, yeah. I guess. Just hey, change. Austin's on the podcast today. Yeah, sorry. <laughs> hey, he he hey. wanted to chime in. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> times already. We're yeah. like, no. I was going to ask you, how old were you when you first grew a beard? <laughs> For me, I can you made tell it right sound now. like having a child or something. <laughs> yeah, yeah. 20. Four? <laughs> 24 ish ish I don't it was know. it was a year before david was born because i shaved it right and i only had it for a year it was right before i shaved it before he was born and then i haven't shaved it since mm-hmm. so he's already five so i've had this one for at least five years so i'll say six six to seven years wow ago. So really? 23 24 mm-hmm. yeah I, I haven't shaved in like five years maybe four or five okay and then before that probably I think since since I turned like eighteen, I've probably clean shaven like two times, maybe. Yeah. <laughs> I just he's at not the very most yet. So you know, <laughs> at the very most, I'll just <laughs> I'd get it a trimmer and just get it down really low. But right. even then, it would never be low. It'd be like the lowest I'll ever go is like the way you have it right now, Austin. Right. What about you? I'll never go lower. The college that I went to wouldn't allow <laughs> beard. Me to, and it, yeah, at the time that I went there, they wouldn't allow you to have a beard, but you had to shave every day too. So if there was five o'clock shadow, you could get written up for it. And wow. so when I graduated college, I still didn't know if I could physically grow a beard. <laughs> and so I worked for the school for two years and could not, uh, I had to shave every day for that. And then when I came to Laurel, that was the first time I could grow a beard if I was able to. You could explore. And, yeah, I could explore. <laughs> and so it was one week it was short. And then three months later, it was a full Amish beard. I could have had a I saw I had a man up. You had it. It was so bad. Yeah. Uh, but then I shaved it back and started to, Tune some things in, and so, yeah. And you haven't saved it, shaved it since, right? Well, no, no, yeah, yeah, I've okay. shaved it. Okay. It's funny how, like, because that's not the first time I've heard that Christian colleges yeah. are strict. I don't know if they are still these days, but, like, I know, like, a lot of even my relatives went to Christian schools in the area, mm-hmm. and they had the same policies where, like, nobody is allowed to have why, facial why? hair. I don't know, but I just find it ironic that, like, those same Christian schools read books and follow like old Christian men who all have beards. Like all of them are like dressing a really nice looking beard and they're telling their kids like no beards allowed. It's a biblical thing. Why would you? uh, It's written in second opinions. Yes. Chapter three. (laughs) And for at least the college that I went to, it wasn't like a legalistic standard of, oh, people with beards are bad. It was more like, just imagine a bunch of college freshmen trying to grow a beard. Uh, and it was like, we want to keep our campus looking nice. Then they look like me. Yeah, it was like they were wanting to avoid the the patchy, splotchy, uh, shaggy from Scooby Doo type. I can only do sideburns yeah. and yeah. neck hair. Yeah, Everything rock else. the sideburns, man. No, then I really look. You look like Wolverine, but blonde. No, it's where I look like a leprechaun. <laughs> <laughs> because, because my facial hair. Tis the hair, season, man. It's my March. facial hair is like Austin's. It's it's red. It's yeah. not blonde. It's weird. <laughs> so <laughs> it's like these red sideburns. I think I have a picture somewhere. I think for my kid's first birthday or something. I grew them out really long. I look so corny. <laughs> Try to go fund me for a green leprechaun hat for Alex. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Um. Anyways, yeah. Yeah, we I, have some big news. Yeah. So today I wanted to um, take a moment 
And first of all, uh, go in circle here, except Austin. But Austin, you can go ahead and <laughs> pretend you and Max have been friends forever. Um, our re- producer. Editor. Editor. Isn't that not the same thing? No, that's not the same thing. Okay. Our editor, Max, um, he got married last weekend. You're so. more of a producer, actually. Really? Kind of. Yeah. All right. <laughs> I guess our editor. Um, and so he got married last weekend, and he's been doing a lot as far as editing our podcast. He's been on the episode with his soon-to-be wife was fiance, yeah, um, before, and um, it was one of our higher listened-to episodes, so I guess everybody loved him. Um, but they talked about a little bit about what our relationship in the early stages is and all that stuff. And so they finally got married and, um, they're probably out on the beach right now hanging out, but we wanted to go around because he is going to end up editing this episode. So, um, we wanted to go around and kind of congratulate him. So congratulations, Max. But at the same time, I wanted to take a moment and leave a passage of scripture and, um, Max had a pretty... It was a pretty lit wedding, so <laughs> there's there is a lot going on at all times. Plates were being smashed. Yeah, like it was hard to get a seat, and then when we finally got a seat, we ended up sitting like all the way in the back. So Max Old was like people. a mile away, so we couldn't even um, share anything with him. But um, I wanted to leave a spot of scripture for you, Max, but not only for you now, for you and your family and your wife. Um, this is Second Timothy chapter three. And what I want to focus on is the importance of Scripture. And so in 2 Timothy 3.15, I'll read, And that from childhood you have known the holy Scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine and reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete. Thoroughly equipped for every good work. Um, when I think about the Bible, this is one of the verses that came to my head um, because I it took me a while, Max, to realize the importance of the Bible, the importance of God's Word. And it took me a while to realize how important it is to me and to my uh, to my wife and to our child. And, you know, I used to put a lot of things above it. And they weren't necessarily bad things. Like I would put ministry above reading scripture. Um, oftentimes I'd put, um, you know, just the act of going to church, put that over scripture. I'd put hanging out with my wife over reading scripture. Um, I'd put many other things. I'd put my career over scripture. And none of those things ever obviously brought me closer to God. And none of those things were as important to my spiritual life other than his word. And what I want to focus on, it says here that it's profitable for doctrine and reproof, for correction, um, for instruction in righteousness. And those are some of the things I think any true Christian walking in the path of life needs. And then it says that the man of God may be complete. We are not complete without uh, the Holy Scripture, without God's Word, because that's how He talks to us, that's how He instructs us, that's how He teaches us. Um, And Max, you know better than anybody listening to us all the time. Um, we we dive in, we try to understand, and there's so much details, so many things, and so many things that we learn just through one one or three or five verses that are so amazingly, uh, so amazing. And then 
It says, um, thoroughly equipped for every good work. So it equips us, it preps us, it gives us true doctrine, um, it helps us have the proper instructions. And so we're able to, to learn so much. And we have to put the Word of God at the highest level possible. Put it over ministry. Put it over um, anything that comes in your life that you think is, a, is such a high priority. Even when you're with your wife, with your family, you have to have that priority of the Word of God to be all the way up here so that you study it together, read it together, and understand the seriousness of it. Without it, we cannot be Christians. Um, and, and God gave us salvation, and Christ died for us, but he wants us to be in his word. He wants us to understand him and love him and grow in him, and we can only do that through his word. Amen. Um, my, my thing to say to you, Max, is not going to be as profound as what Alex said, and I, I, would, I would say that what, what he brought up to you, what his, I guess to use the Russian word, for you and Karina is what I would say is probably the most important thing. I think if you're, if you're grounded in God's word, regardless of what we can tell you about, you know, always love your wife and, you know, always humble yourself, all those things, any cheesy thing that anybody could ever tell you, it's all written in God's word. Like the, the way we should act as, as husbands, as, as, you know, as Karina, as your wife, the way we should act is written in God's word. And it's written not just to people who are married, but to everyone. These are guidelines for anybody who wants to be a, a good God-fearing Christian. So that for sure is number one. And I agree wholeheartedly with everything that Alex said. But for me, my, my thing to say to you is something a little more light, I guess. And it'd be to not forget what it means to have fun. Because I know that getting married brings a lot of stress and like adult quote unquote things. And it's great. Like it, it really is a great period of your life, but there is a lot of stress that happens with that as well. All of a sudden, you know, you have to, especially as a man, like this is something that me being like the youngest married person here or the least experienced, it's something that I was for sure not ready for. And I don't know if you ever can really be ready for it, but it really hit me like a brick that like, you know, I'm the man of the house and responsibility falls upon my shoulders. Yep. And though that's, that's a very real reality, both on a spiritual level and just on a physical level. The fact that you got to pay bills now, the fact that you have a house that you can't let burn down to the ground. Like that's a real thing you never really thought about probably because you had like, you know, mom and dad who had to think about that. But now it's a real thing that you have to consider, you know, car problems, family problems. God forbid something happens to anybody, you know, to your wife or to you. Like these are all things that are real. And a lot of times in that moment, you can kind of forget what it means to just be like, to just have fun, to just be careless. And I think that's something that I would want for you and Kadina, that you guys don't forget what it means to have fun. Because I know you, Max, I know how much fun you like to have and I know how fun you can be. And I wouldn't want you to forget that. Keep keep that in, like, in hand. Don't let that ever be something that goes away from you. Always have fun. Enjoy this period of your life. Have an absolute blast. Like Give it your all. And just have fun with your wife. And I, I promise you that those those more stressful parts of life will become way easier when you do have that enjoyment of waking up every day with the love of your life. Um, I'll try to make this quick. <laughs> so, um, Max, so the passage I want to share with you or leave in thought for you. And this goes off of what I've mentioned at the reception when we played the game, but I don't know if you were listening 
No, you weren't even there. He was you guys were taking a break. Yeah. You guys were taking a break, so you didn't hear it. But so here's my chance to share it again. Um, so Ephesians chapter 5, verse 25. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Uh, there's a lot we can take from this verse, especially uh, with the phrase of what Christ, how Christ gave himself up for her. A lot goes into that. Obviously, the ultimate was his you know, sacrifice and everything. But um, I want to think back to the night of before of the Passover, before he died, uh, where he washed the disciples' feet. Now, if you think about Jesus, who he was, right, he was... He was acknowledged by the disciples as being the Christ, the Messiah, right? They knew his, about his godship. They knew uh, he was a rabbi. He was a master. He was a teacher. He had huge following, social status and everything. Maybe not the money, but he had a lot of respect and honor and, and even some authority, you can say. And he had all of this that you wouldn't think a person with all of this would come down and wash his disciples' feet, right? And that to me screams of you know, humility and servitude. And so my kind of uh, encouragement for you is that, yes, you are the husband. Yes, you are the authority figure in your family. You are the head of your family and and all of that. But don't forget that we still have to be able to humble ourselves and serve our wives, not just because we have to, but because we love them. So because Christ loved the church so much. All right. Now, Max, I know you're sitting at your desk crying. But, but we have to get into Ephesians, guys. All right. What ta- how, how far are we into this episode? What about Austin? What if Austin, Austin wants to say something? All right, Austin. You don't know Max at all. <laughs> <laughs> Congratulations, Max. <laughs> nice. That's the best. I think he had the shortest one. <laughs> yeah, but that came from a pastor. So that probably true. means more. <laughs> Max, study the Greek word of congratulations. You'll we'll get the understanding. Congratulutso. <laughs> All right, let's get into Ephesians. Does anybody want to do a real quick recap of our last Ephesians <laughs> episode? Me. Does anybody remember? Um, we finished Ephesians 4. So we talked about... Um, it's been a while. Yeah, we it's it, been a while. So Ephesians 4 talks about a lot of the stuff about what... Christ has done for the people to build up the church. Uh, he gave gifts, as we read, right? And uh, starting Unity. with chapter 4, Paul kind of calls, he says, I urge you to walk in the manner of uh, worthy of the calling to which you have been called. And so he kind of goes on this thing. And then later towards the second half and the end of the chapter, he says, uh, you know, we are to put away things of the flesh, that we are not to be darkened in our understanding. We are not to be alienated. We're not to... Um, try to follow deceitful desires uh, that we have renewed in the spirit of our minds and to put on the new self created in the image of Christ. Um, all of these like very kind of holy type, set apart type characteristics of a Christian, what he should be. And, uh, and then he said, you know, put away slander, malice, and be kind to one another, forgiving one another as Christ has forgiven you. Which brings us to chapter five. Which... Just for the listener, this chapter is very kind of hand-in-hand with the previous chapter. The topic that we're about to read into is, and I would say is very similar to the way we left off in chapter 4. So it's almost like we're getting that continuation of the same thought that we were reading. Yeah, I think it's fair to actually, Serge already kind of read those two verses, but I would start by reading 31 and 32, then moving into uh, verse 1. I think that would kind of put us in this 
uh, much better description, much better context of what um, Apostle Paul's writing here. So can we ask the person with the best voice to read? How about he sings it? <laughs> <laughs> and play a guitar at the same time. <laughs> I can play a mean air guitar. Uh, <laughs> you don't want me to sing it. You heard me sing the other day. <laughs> I don't want you to read because you read the whole Bible for us. <laughs> yeah, I'll be like, yeah, I'll read all chapter four as well. Uh, Austin, would you like, would you be willing to read for us, I guess, verse 31 and 32 from chapter four and, and then, then up one to through seven? One through yeah. seven. Of course. Our verse 31. Let all bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice. And be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, even as God in Christ forgave you. Therefore, be imitators of God as dear children, and walk in love as Christ also has loved us and given himself for us as an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling aroma. But fornication and all uncleanness or covetousness let it be not even named among you, as it is fitting for saints. Neither filthiness, nor foolish talking, nor coarse jesting, which are not fitting, but rather giving of thanks. For this you know that no fornicator, unclean person, nor covetous man who is an idolater, has an inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. So let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience— Therefore, do not be partakers with them. Hmm. Yeah, to me, that was a, a very convicting few verses when I read it today earlier. I mean, verse 1 just says it all, be imitators of God. That's it. That's all we got to do. Yeah, easy as that. Easy as that. <laughs> Easier said than done. But don't you love that phrase, as dear children? Because these chapters 4, 5, and 6 are all the imperatives flowing out of the indicatives of what we've talked about the gospel in chapters one through three. Mm -hmm. So God's not asking you to do something to get into his family. He's adopted you in Christ. He's united you with Christ. And now through the power of the Holy Spirit, he says, therefore, imitate me as dear children. You're not condemned any longer. You're imitating me as someone who loves me and longs to follow me. I want to touch on that because you said, you mentioned imitators and, you know, it's the third word here that we're reading. But um, when you look at, when you think about just the word imitator, um, it doesn't say, you know, be as God, hmm. right? Or it, it says be an imitator, be imitator of God. Um, I, it made me think that we should strive to be like Christ. We should strive for his perfection, but we'll never be able to do it by our own means ever. And I think no matter how hard we try, no matter anything we do, how many good things we do, how much clothes we donate to Goodwill or you know, how much money we donate to a homeless person or how much any any of these deeds that we do or help people, we still will never achieve, uh, you know, Christhood. And I think that's why that's why when I think of therefore be imitators, um, sometimes I think uh, you can try your hardest, but that's all you can do. See, I'm going to say something and then you can correct me if I'm wrong. <laughs> so the way, <laughs> because I mean, that's what we're here for, right? Um, so... When I read this phrase or this passage, verse one and uh, kind of the first part of verse two, as in walk in love, right, as Christ loved. So imitators of God as beloved or as dear children. So when I think of that, I'm thinking of like when I was a kid, when how I see my kids doing now, right? I have a five-year-old and I have an almost three-year-old. And seeing them 
mimic me, my actions or my phrases and what me and my wife do, you know, say and what they see of others and things on TV, you know, what they mimic, they pick things up and they mimic them, but they do it out of the simplicity. And I don't know if you can even say out of the kindness of their heart, maybe without maybe realizing that something's good or bad, but they do it out of simplicity and out of love because they see like their dad do it, their grandpa and grandma do it, and they like, and they want to be like them. And so like, they just do it because of that. Do you think this is what Paul is trying to convey here? Exactly. Yep. That's exactly what he's trying to convey. Because this isn't isn't the only time where we're kind of compared to children in scripture. And I think most of the time I I take that same kind of interpretation of there is a sort of um, naivety to children where they don't really, they don't really understand what's going on and they don't need to like, that's kind of the benefit of being a kid. You don't need to know everything. You don't, you don't need to concern yourself with everything because dad concerns himself with all that stuff. And I, I do believe that there is a sense of wisdom in that scripture does compare us to children in God's eyes very often for that exact reason. And we're told to be like children for that reason that we should have some sort of, we should be almost naive to some of the things that this world has to offer. Just kind of like a child doesn't know any better. Like we should just kind of look at God and just, that's it. That's it. He does it all. And our job is just to, like your kids with you, just just be like him. That's it. Yep. Verse 2. Yeah, I think verse 2 kind of backs up exactly what you said too. Walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, um, which I think we probably kind of just talked about. But I think there's definitely a lot more to say about the fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Austin, can you lead us into what, do you, what does that mean, a fragrant offering and a sacrifice to God? Well, we have to remember that Jesus' sacrifice on the cross, his blood paid the price for our sins as a, as a sacrifice. Sweet-smelling sweet aroma to God, we would understand that to be a reference to what many of these Christians would have understood, Old Testament, mm-hmm. sacrificial system. Um, God smelling, as it were, the sacrifice and it being pleasing to him. But the reason that this is a pleasing sacrifice to God is that it's his own son hmm. being the sacrifice for our sins. We can walk in love as Christians because Christ gave himself for us. That's the only reason we have the power to walk in love is because Jesus Christ paid for all of our sins. The active obedience of Christ is why we can obey freely. It's why we don't have to live up to the perfection of the law in order to earn God's favor because Jesus has already accomplished that for us. And so we receive that identity by faith, and now we are walking in love because of the reality that's been given to us in Christ. So, because all of that is true, walk in love as Christ also loved us, and he gave himself for us as an offering and sacrifice to God. So we ought also to give ourselves as a sacrifice and offering for others, not in the exact same way. It's, you know, we're not walking to Calvary the way Christ walked to Calvary, but we are putting to death the things that we're going we're gonna to see here. We're putting to death the deeds of the flesh. We're casting off the old man, which is already dead in Christ that was crucified with him, but we're loving others because of Christ's love for us. It's the motivation for our love. It also sets an impossible bar so that there is no reason for us to ever feel like we have accomplished anything really because we will like you said we can't walk to Calvary we can never do what Christ did physically or spiritually speaking 
So setting that bar as the ultimate example, it's it's a place for us to forever strive to yeah. be like that, knowing that we never will be. Kind of like you said, Alex, that like it's not because we can imitate God, but we should try to imitate him. We should try to be as much like him as we can. And yeah, if we fall, we, we you know brush our knees off, keep moving. We ask for forgiveness and we keep going. We ask for strength and we keep going. We open up our Bible, we learn, we grow better and we keep going. And And having that perfect example of Christ is the thing that we should strive towards. So I do want to ask this question because it's right here in scripture and we keep saying and throwing it around and it, something that we hear very often, walk in love. What does that mean? What does that look like? The, um, oppos- the opposite of the uh, world yeah. does. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, was actually, I was actually thinking that too, Serge, because um, listening to you guys, I was kind of thinking about where does verse three play into this, right? Um, I think walking in love is the complete opposite of verse three and uh, even verse four, the things it mentions. Because if you look at the opposites of those things that Paul brings up, um, you start to understand that um, uh, to, to walk in love is to be imitators of God. And ha- to be an imitator of God, you can't do the things listed in three and four. You must do the opposite. Well, I'm, I guess so, but it seems like... I think it's a is- relationship. Like relationship with uh, human being, other human beings, um, walking in love. Um, which love are we talking about here? Let's go into there. <laughs> Can we have the Greek translation, uh, please? Would you agree? Would you agree? We're looking at agape love. I have to. I'd have to look yeah, at it. We but, don't know, but anyways, we can assume. I assume. Don't be smart, Alex. I'm not. Um, <laughs> I'm not going to give you the Greek, but maybe Austin will look it up. But it's like. It, it's it's broad, but at the same time, it's not. Because if you walk in love, and I think that's why verses 3 and 4 are the opposite, is because it helps us understand what not to do to walk in love. Are you looking it up, Austin? Do you okay. think... I'm guessing it, it is agape, because it's talking about sacrifice. Yeah. But I might be wrong. What do you think? Anybody else? I I have a weird opinion on this kind of stuff. Was there when there's like... Agape? certain generalizations like this because it's like it's so bright just walk in love like like you said like what does that even mean <laughs> like what what does what that means holding hands with everybody yeah like <laughs> where does that even begin I, I have this kind of <laughs> weird idea of it <laughs> he said greet greet each uh, your holy brethren kiss. with a holy kiss very loving so i don't know man <laughs> in my in my opinion and I'm talking strictly to believers, people who are born again, I believe there is, I don't want to say there's no part of this that we don't understand, but like I think the template for us to quote unquote walk in love has been laid out. And I I, I truly believe that if you are born again, there's no, like you can't use a lack of knowledge as an excuse. I think the real issue is that we know exactly how to do it. We just don't do it. Like it's it's not like you don't know that lying is wrong. Like we all know that, and like those those fundamental truths that we know that Christ has opened up to us. Again, I'm I'm being very clear that this is to reborn Christians. Like I'm not talking to people who are one foot in, one foot out as far as like their faith. That's a little different story, I think. But if you truly claim that you are with Christ, I believe that there is. I I don't know. I I can't put like complete certainty on this, but it's really usually, in my opinion. 
it's not a matter of a lack of knowledge of how to walk in love. It's just a matter of we don't want to or we choose not to because there are certain things that we choose to do that we know are not loving. We choose to cuss at the guy who cut us off and, you know, on the road. That we know that's wrong. Like, I don't need to preach here and tell you that's wrong. That's not loving. But we do those things. And I, I think that's a lot, of t- a lot of times why we see so much repetition in the New Testament because Paul doesn't really need to tell you again and again and again that the same exact rules he doesn't really need to teach you anything new it's more just the stuff that you know he just needs to keep repeating it to these churches who keep messing up and keep doing these same issues like again i don't think like we're going to get into verse three four and five i don't think fornication was something that was like like shocking to them wait we're not allowed to do that i think they knew that what paul was trying to do is just remind them like guys if you're walking in love if you're walking like christ if you're imitators of god you're not doing that. Here's a, like a, a daily dose of reminders that you guys need to wake up. And I think that when it comes to this kind of stuff, it's not so much a lack of knowledge. It's more just we choose not to do those things. Of course, maybe there are some like crazy extreme examples you can come up with. Like, I don't know, someone who's never heard a single thing about God's word and he comes to Christ because of one sermon. Maybe that person has something to learn. Even then, I guess in Romans, we do read about the conscience that God instills us with. So even then, I think there might be an argument. But aside from those super crazy situations, nine times out of ten, I think we know what we, what we need to do. We just don't want to do it. What if we say, do what Christ did? Could that be like walking he- in love? Healing people? No. Well, Christ had, because it's talking about being imitators of God. So Christ had this way about everything that he did was with love, was love towards his creation, right? So if we're to be imitators, uh, we should strive to do as Christ did. But you're you're just picking, I see what you're like saying. Uh, I'm not talking about healing in general, healing everybody. We don't, we don't have that power to per se, right? I can't just go to a hospital, heal everybody. Um, My wife can. (laughs) (laughs) i was gonna say todd white can but (laughs) but anyways i gave my i gave my answer so i I was thinking i'm just gonna share mine real quick and then you can put the nail in the coffin here austin um i was just thinking that because it's talking about um austin looked it up agape love sacrificial love unconditional does that mean sacrificial or unconditional it's just a it just be the basic use of love agape love is used differently it's been often said to be sacrificial love, but it can be used multiple okay. ways. So it's just a it's a genuine regard for another person. The why the way if you take that into consideration and the way it says here, as Christ loved us and gave himself up, right? He did all of this without expecting or demanding anything in return or upfront, right? And to me that tells me that that's how we are ought to love those, our neighbors, our peers, and even people of this world to show them love without actually demanding and expecting anything in return. Hmm. Is my on the right page or no? Yeah, then it's all great. I just wanted to add something from a different side okay. because our culture right now is in a huge conversation about what is love. Mm. So if you were to watch the news or more likely if you're on TikTok or Twitter or Facebook, whatever social media platform you're on. And TikTok isn't news. Yeah. 30-second <laughs> news. You'll see all these things about current bills that are out and whether or not passing them is loving or whether or not a specific policy is loving one's neighbor. 
the question has to come back to what does Scripture say love is? Not what do I think love is, not does what my friend think love is, but what is the definition of love from Scripture? So I just wanted to read a couple verses from 1 Corinthians 13 that show us a description of what Christian love actually is. So love suffers long, it's patient, love is kind, love does not envy, love does not parade itself, it's not puffed up or arrogant, it doesn't behave rudely, it doesn't seek its own, that is, it's not about its own benefit, it's about the benefit of someone else, it's not provoked, it thinks no evil, so it has no evil intent towards somebody, it does not rejoice in wrongdoing or iniquity, but it rejoices in the truth. So any version or definition of love that lies to somebody, that tells them that, hey, what you're doing is perfectly fine, if that's not true, then that's not love. Mm. Love bears all things, believes the best about things, it hopes all things, and it endures all things. It never fails. But any version or definition of love that doesn't fulfill the definition of Scripture is a faulty definition of love that you can reject. It's good. Good stuff. It's so nice to have a pastor on here. <laughs> Should <right>. come more often. <laughs> uh, I think we can tackle verse three and four together because they pretty much just kind of give a list. But it says, uh, but, sex, but sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which is out of place. But instead, let there be thanksgiving. So um, in some translations, uh, beginning of verse 3, it might say, but sexual immorality or fornication. Uh, so in today's language, I'm not sure about back then, but today's, those two mean very different things. Like fornication typically just means sex before marriage, whereas sexual immorality is a very broad umbrella kind of term. Do we need to elaborate on that more or kind of dissect that? Or In biblical standards, though, would you, would you think that it means the same thing? I don't know. I'm not a scholar. I'm not a scholar either, <laughs> but fornication is more of an all, all-encompassing term. So mm-hmm. any form of sexual activity that is not within the marriage union, mm-hmm. whether that is involved with another person or self-involved, it's fornication. Okay. So anything outside of what the script Bible defines as marriage, mm-hmm. anything outside of that is right. fornication. So that's more of like older... English, I would assume, or is that still used today? It's I still, think that's still the modern translation of it, is. or definition of it. Yeah. Oh, okay. I, th- I, I guess maybe I just always thought it just meant sex before marriage. Period. That's its. That's a con. It's a contextual use. Would be a fornicator is someone who's having sex before marriage, but it's used to just describe all forms of sexual sin. Mm-hmm. So Paul isn't being extremely specific. He's not naming one particular type. As adultery would be sexual sin. Of someone who is married. Cheating, pretty much. Yeah, yeah. Fornication is an all-encompassing term. Whether you're married or not, Okay, sexual gotcha. sin, that all. definitely makes sense. But it's interesting that he does list that, and that's the first thing, because, you know, the, given their cultural background, the Greeks, the Romans, they had several different gods dedicated to this thing. And a lot of times where um, the, they would worship these gods, the pagans would worship these, you know, sex-type gods, whether it be for, you know, um, anything related to that, it would be through sexual activities. But here Paul says that this is not how... We talked about this in 
chapter three or four, I believe, uh, chapter four, where it says, verse 20 says, but this is not the way you learn Christ, right? Uh, that is not the way we worship Christ. That is not how we wor- uh, come to knowing him is through these kind of immoral sexual activities or fornication, right? That has actually almost nothing to do with that. Marriage is a whole separate thing, but for a typical average Christian, it has nothing to do with that. That's why he says, put sexual morality and all these impurities or covetousness, these things shouldn't even be named among your saints because that is not the way of Christ. And um, I kind of look at it when I read but fornication or but sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness. Um, it's kind of like, it made me think, is this is this a comparison? Is he comparing fornication with uncleanliness or covetousness? Or is he saying fornication um, and so he's kind of like separating them. Like they are two different things and they are just a serious. Do you get what I'm saying? Like what what's Paul trying to, trying to say here with and all? Sometimes we like to think of fornication as just a sexual act as if all the things that lead up to that moment don't matter. Aren't sinful. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. And so we, we can self-justify as long as this moment did not take place, you know, we were free of sin or it didn't happen. But Paul is trying to, to show that all the things leading to any form of sexual activity outside the marriage union is God's design is sin and should not be named among Christians. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah. Usually I hear this term a lot that sin is sticky meaning that when you sin in one area, you've technically sinned in several if you were to stay back because if you lied, that means you did something before to cover it up. So you've sinned before you even lied. And, you know, like all these other sins kind of stick itself to it so that if you created sexual immorality, you probably did something else that led you to it that was sinful, right? You, For example, like you saw, you lost it, and then you physically went and got it. So there's already several sins just in, you know, in that whole thing. And this is a podcast primarily to youth, correct? Yeah. So let me say it this way. First of all, understand that God has a design for that sexual mm-hmm. desire. Yep. Satan hasn't created anything. Satan has twisted God's design. Mm-hmm. So when we talk about sexual desire, uh, things that are created by God for humans to enjoy, that those are good things in God's design, in God's ordained means, which is marriage. So the fact that we have that desire, the fact that as you're going through different stages of life where maybe those desires awaken for the first time in your life, understand that the fact that those desires are, are there is not inherently sinful. It's the fact that those desires were given by God for the marriage union, mm-hmm. and that's where it's to be enjoyed. These things described here are the abuse or the perversion mm-hmm. of that good gift from God. Mm-hmm. That's a very good way to put it. Yeah, and... Um... Yeah, I think you said it perfectly. The The thing is, like you said, God created something. Satan just took it and perverted it. And um, I think what's what's very concerning is the fact that, uh, I think Chuck Smith talked about this in one sermon, but the fact that uh, what the world takes as love, they try to connect that with fornication as if fornication is love. You know, um, you oftentimes hear... Uh, these two people made love together. Well, it's like, you can't say it like that because you're talking about sexual immorality and love, which are complete opposite ends of the spectrum. And if you walk in love, you won't be doing 
uh, sexual immorality. You won't be doing things that are impure and covetous. And so you can't relate those. And, and when you do see that and you stumble upon that in your life, you have to understand how, um, how that's perverted and how that's um, not correct and that we should stray away from that, run away from that. Mm-hmm. It, it says in here that um, it is not even be named among you. So you can't let it not even be named among you. Don't even have it in your circle. Um, because the further we try to stay away from these things, I think the more we'll improve in our walk in love. Yep. Because uh, if you if you remember in chapter four, uh, verse nineteen, Paul says uh, he's talking about the Gentiles, meaning unsaved people. He's saying they have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. Right. So he's definitely saying that we are no longer those people. Right. We are now defined by Christ's sacrifice, right? His saving grace. That's what defines us. And for that, um, you know, to, for us to live up to that looks like this, what Paul is saying. It is not this, it is not this, it is this instead. Mm-hmm. Yep. And that's not all, right? If we look at further in, ch- in verse 4, uh, neither filthiness nor foolish talking, um, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. And so this is where, and I spoke with Serge about this, this is where I read verse 3, and I'm like, oh, praise God, I've, I, you know, I've spent so many years fighting those, and, and I'm not saying that we still don't fight that, right? Mm-hmm. But it, it, it didn't grab me by my neck. And so when, I, when I'm uh, reading verse 4, that's where I was like, I gotta, yeah, I got I to gotta pause here and think about my life, right? Because... Um, it, it from what it looks like, from what we read, not from what it looks like, but from what we read, these the, the what is in verse four: filthiness, foolish talking, um, uh, crude joking. These things are not far from unclean, uncleanness, covetousness, right? Fornication. They're still sins, and they're still sins that not only ruin our relationship with Christ, they um, they stop us from being imitators of God. And they get in the way. And just like you guys mentioned earlier, these things do grow inside of us. And so I had to pause there and think about my life because um, I've had a lot of time where I have said crude jokes. Um, I have spoke about other people in a negative way that I wouldn't say it to their face. Um, I've spoken behind people's back. And it's one of those wars that I'm constantly fighting myself. And so that's where I, um, I kind of had that conviction come upon me. And, and I, w- I felt I had to pause for a minute and be like, there's so much I need to improve on. Could, could we almost say these are like gateway sins in a weird way? Like you don't, there's still a sin. It's still wrong, but it we've almost like desensitized them to think they're not as bad, Somet- you know? Sometimes our guilt. Is not a strong yeah yeah a crude joke. We, we we assume yeah. it's not that bad because right. it's like it's it's a joke we made with some guys like you know like whatever it, it happens boys will be boys that whole you know but in reality it's almost like this kind of that kind of mindset though leads to bigger issues awesome. because it, it opens the door to bigger problems entering to the devil kind of coming in and showing you like okay I mean if you're okay with talking like that yeah who knows maybe you're okay with looking at that maybe you're okay with trying that like all of a sudden it's no longer a joke it becomes a big issue but the dangerous part is that if you're making those kinds of jokes if you're talking that way if you think that way 
you won't see it as a problem when it occurs because you're already you've already kind of desensitized your brain to think okay well no, there's nothing really wrong with that like i know it's wrong but it's you know i mean no one said anything yeah right? like we, we we're always talking about this kind of stuff we're always messing around about this kind of stuff you know it it, it leads to worse things austin yeah have you ever been to a, a russian sauna no, I have not. Don't go. <laughs> Don't go. <laughs> as you relaxing will come out and a as changed good, man. <laughs> as relaxing and as as awesome as the experience is, you tend to be in a really hot, sweaty room with your friends. And this is where a lot of your crude joking, foolish talk, uh, and even sometimes filthiness comes out. And then you come home and you're like talking to your wife, oh, yeah, I had a great time, and you're thinking back, you're like, man, I said so many stupid things. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Can I connect covetousness to this for a second? Yeah. Because it, at first it might seem out of place, doesn't it? Mm -hmm. Fornication. That's what I was thinking. Uncleanness yeah. or covetousness. And I won't take credit for this. I just did a little bit of reading behind it. It seems that Paul is connecting covetousness to you coveting what somebody else has sexually. Mm -hmm. So you're you're viewing somebody else as an object to use rather than what their identity is. So we have that fornication, uncleanness. Your view of other people becomes, what can I get from them? How can I use them rather than how can I treat them the way Christ would treat them? And that segues right into the filthiness, foolish talking, or coarse jesting, because that's all about using somebody else. It's all about twisting something that God has created and making it coarse or disgusting, talking about something, so some way that someone's created in a way that puts them down sexually or uses them sexually. So I think all three of these, filthiness, foolish talking, or coarse jesting, in their context are sexually related. Hmm. Uh, I don't think by foolish talking he means there's never a time to joke around with one another or that there's never a time for laughing so there's a difference between we are we never jest, and there's a difference between saying we never jest in such a way that speaks poorly of someone sexually or abuses that gift. Rather, we thank God for the gift that is sexual union and marriage. We don't abuse it. So that's what she said, joke is bad. According to this, yes. <laughs> okay. Just wanted to clarify. <laughs> yeah. That's why I don't watch. Why'd you have to go there, Serge? <laughs> because it it's, needs to be. it's convicting. <laughs> we have um, to. This is why I love this because we were like on one train track, and Austin's like, "Hey, I'm gonna derail you guys right now." No, he's gonna bring us back to the right train track. <laughs> <laughs> we're the it's ones like, derailing it's ourselves. It's like we're headed, um, but at the same time, you know, we did mention earlier that is there a connection, right? And that's kind of what I was trying to understand is. Um, the, the way Paul brings these things up, um, these sins, as you can say, um, it, they're not random by any chance, right? He's trying to he's trying to give us um, he's trying to paint us a picture that we have to we have to try to understand, and that's what I was trying to do earlier because I thought about it. I'm like, well, there's so many other things we could have threw or Paul could have threw in there, right? And so now that I think about it that way, if you take uh, sexual immorality as let's say your main word, all of these relate to it. Mm -hmm. So mm. that's kind of what I was trying to understand earlier too. Well, I feel like some of these, what he's talking about here, um, 
No, I mean, I, I agree that the, there is a very interesting perspective that they, what he's talking about here, because verse four, take, t- it seems like it's talking about the tongue, right? The speech versus verse three specifically talks about what we do to our body, uh, specifically in terms of sexual immorality. So if you remember, uh, so this is just a, a thought I'm going to throw out on the table and you guys can dissect it, get rid of it, kill it, or um, go off of it. But in uh, 1 Corinthians, Paul talks about how the, our body is the temple, right? Because we have the spirit living inside of us. And specifically in context of that verse, he's talking about sexual immorality again. And he's saying that is what, that's how you defile the temple is through sexual immorality. And so if you consider that, for example, right? Verse 3, that's exactly what he's saying is that by doing these things, you're defiling the temple. And then if you remember what Christ said, if you remember when we talked about Matthew 15, about traditions and commandments, right? It's not what, you're not defiled by what goes into your mouth or into your body, right? What comes out of your mouth. It's what comes out. So I think Paul is trying to make, make, do you think Paul maybe is trying to make that connection here that by doing these things, we're defiling our bodies and we're actually showing our true colors by saying all these crude, foolish, and insensitive things that we say. We're certainly showing what's been on our minds and on our hearts, which Paul says here should not be the case, mm-hmm. should not be named among us. But he is addressing them because they are, right? Mm-hmm. So if you're a Christian out there and you are struggling with these things, know that Paul addressed them to Christians so that they could be mm-hmm. addressed. Yep. Um, yep. And we'll get to that in a second. There's a, a stern warning that needs to be addressed. Yes. But first, realize that Paul is addressing true believers here. Mm-hmm. I like struggling with these things. I like that leading into these two verses and, and including the next one because it's following along the same, same topic of uh, sexual immorality. I like that, again, going back to verse 2 again, but just tying it in, he tells us to walk in love as Christ has loved us. And the specific almost like metaphor that he uses of Christ is a sweet smelling aroma. And I love, I love that metaphor in particular because you can't avoid smell. It's like someone making popcorn, like your house smells like it for two days, you know, like you had COVID maybe, I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) I still smell things, things. I don't know. But like a smell, like when something just is so powerfully aromatic, you can't avoid it. And that's the kind of the comparison that we're supposed to draw here, that we're supposed to be like Christ in the sense that it's unavoidable. Like we're supposed to be so Christ-like that we just, it, it's a, it's like obnoxious to smell because it's smell so like a Christian. much. You smell like a Christian. Yeah. <laughs> what does but, that smell like? <laughs> but because of that, going into these sins that he's bringing up, that there should be no like variation in that smell. Like there is no avoiding the smell of Jesus. Like there is no avoiding it and there should be no weird smells laced in there. You know, like that doesn't happen when it comes to something that is so overpowering. And with these sins, you shouldn't even, as a believer, there shouldn't even be that like moment of like a scent of anything other than Jesus. Mm -hmm. But instead, let there be thanksgiving. Like... Don't do this or this, but he says, but instead, do this. Be thankful. And I think Austin brought that up. Right? Yeah, that makes that sense because you're, you were saying like looking at other people being covetous of what they have, and he kind of counters it with the thing that 
cures that, which is right. thankfulness. Right. Be thankful for what you do have. Understand that it could be worse. Understand that you are blessed. Understand that God did give you the opportunity. Whatever the case may be, there is a reason to be thankful. Mm-hmm. Yep. And here's the warning that Austin mentioned earlier, right, in verse 5. Um, I think this is where also, if you read this, um, it really brings the seriousness of what is spoken about here. And it says in verse 5, For this you know, that no fornicator, unclean person, nor covetous man, who is an idolater, idolater, has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. So, (laughs) this one also made me think. Um, It's scary. It's a scary thought, and it's a scary warning. Because ultimately, every Christian is wanting to be headed to the kingdom of Christ, right? We want to be with Christ. So is this a salvation-based verse? No. <laughs> and <laughs> yes. But what I would address with the no of that would be, if you look at the title, a fornicator, unclean person, nor covetous man who is an idolater, those are terms of identity. This person is identified by this sin. And they're not termed in such a way that you can say that they have confessed, repented of that sin. This is a fornicator, implying the continued progressive fornication apart from repentance and trust in Christ. So those, those fornicators, those unclean people, those who have not come to Christ by faith, they, w- had, they have no part of the kingdom of God. So why would you want to be like them? Why would you want to continue in that sin, knowing that that sin is what's taking them to hell? So why would you want that to be a part of your life? But it's deeper than just saying that. This is a stern warning. If you have sexual sin in your life today, do not hide it. Do not pretend like it doesn't matter just because you think no one else knows about it. You need to bring that to the light. Because what Paul is saying here is a Christian confesses and forsakes these sins a Christian does not live unapologetically in these sins. Is that how, how would you guys respond to yeah, that? Yeah, I totally agree. I think we oftentimes can think, well, I'm not technically sexual, sexually immoral because I'm not married to anybody, right? I'm not cheating on anybody. But that is so far from the truth because sexual immorality, whether you're married or not, like mentioned earlier, God made uh, this perfect way, right, this urge, uh, uh, men and women, this sexual urge. And if we're, uh, we are perverting and using this urge in the wrong way, perverting what God created in perfection, we are, um, it is so bad that we will not be with Christ. We will not be headed to his kingdom because if we, if we, forn- if we have that sexual immorality, and I totally agreed. I think it's a very, very serious warning, very serious issue, and it's a topic that is so secretive nowadays. Um, it is so hidden. It is so embarrassing to talk about. It is so inappropriate to talk about, but yet it is um, the seriousness of it is so high because it has everything to do with uncleanliness and covetousness and um, this filthiness and... All of this, you know, 
stems from fornication, leads to fornication. It comes from, and it's just so serious. So you've said that although you're not, I might not be married, right? And I might not be sleeping around with people. Therefore, I'm not technically doing anything sexual more, not, not, not doing anything, you know, sexually immoral. Mm-hmm. But you said there, there's more to that. So I'm just going to blatantly ask the question because I'm sure a lot of people have this question. Is watching porn considered sexual immorality? Yes, absolutely. Okay. Without so question. What about if I'm a high school student? I'm sure we've all seen experienced this, you know, walking down the street, not the street, or the hallway, or just out going to class, right? Between breaks, going to class, going to class, going to class. We all seen this growing up, especially here in America. You see a guy and a girl making out, you know, type of stuff. You notice that. Have I sinned? No. Is that a sin? Noticing, no, is not. It becomes a sin when you let it fester and grow. And Jesus said, if you look after a woman with lust, lust. yeah, you've committed adultery with her in your heart. So just, just noticing that that's happening is one thing, but saying like, hmm, I wonder if I was in his shoes and I was with her. That's already lusting. Yeah. See, right. and that, that's the difference though. I think it's one thing when something kind of just happens to you yeah. and you have to make a decision in the moment of like, well, how do I think about this? It's another thing when you go out looking for it. And like that second scenario where the person's looking and like is almost enjoying what they're seeing, that's already no longer like a situation they couldn't like avoid. Now that's a situation that they put themselves into. Like here's they chose a, to look into that. Here's an example, right? If if you're a teenager, teenage boy and you're walking and a beautiful woman walks by, you can she walks by, you saw her, you can continue on with your with your day and continue on but the thought could enter and leave if if you choose it to be so right but you can also later even in the day grab that thought and drag it back and now put it back in your brain and and think on it and lust after what you saw and so um i think the the whole seriousness and the whole scary thing about all this is is it's hard to let that go right because God did give us an urge, right? Mm-hmm. He, we do have a sexual urge to, to get married, to start a family, to reproduce. And it's so hard to let that go. And that's the thing. When, when you are involved in a lot of uncleanliness and covetousness, um, you are, I think you are, it's harder for you to battle those things, but at the same time, battle uh, sexual immorality. You need the strength. You need strength. You need Christ. And I think you need his word. But you also need to understand how serious it is, mm-hmm. right? Whether you're married or not. So I want to go back to what Austin was saying, right? About identity and that whether or not this defines or not. So when we think of those things, right? A person that cons- constantly, habitually, willingly practices practices these types of things, right? You would say like that person is identified by that sin. It, this is what he's enslaved to that sin. Yeah. And he's not even, maybe not even trying to correct himself or, you know, forsake that sin. So would you say that that kind of person has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ? Let me address verse six with that question in mind. Okay. Yeah. Let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. The empty words would be, counsel that says, oh, it's totally fine. You're just a teenager. Your body's changing. Mm -hmm. 
So yeah, go ahead and look at this. Everyone looks at porn. Why don't you? You can do that. It's part of puberty. It's part of yeah. going through life. You know, oh, two young people together. It's only. It's a matter of time. And every show, almost every show that's out there today, has this as its main philosophy of just watching people hook up together and how they find each other and all that. And it's persuaded as just this normal daily part of life. Yeah. Paul says. Don't be deceived by those empty words or even any pastoral counsel that would say, you are good to do all of this, this is the way you are made, any homosexual relationship, that's fine, it's just the way that you've been made. Those are empty words. But I want to point out what he says next. Because of those sins, the wrath of God comes upon whom? The sons of disobedience. The sons of disobedience. Who are those people? The sons of disobedience are those who are not saved. The wrath of God has been absorbed at the cross for everyone who places their faith in Christ Jesus. So if you have placed your faith in Christ Jesus, you've repented of your sins, and you're struggling with this sin, you have to first of all realize that the wrath of God on your life has already been absorbed in Jesus's work. So your sin that you're struggling with today is not going to be what sends you to hell because your hell has already been absorbed in Christ. If you don't believe that, what you will take from this verse is that you are earning your salvation by refraining from sexual immorality. And we've already come to chapters 1 through 3 saying that's not the case. Mm -hmm. you, do, you are not saved by refraining from sexual immorality. You are saved by Jesus' work. So the wrath of God does come upon the sons of disobedience because of those sins. Therefore, refrain from them. And so to your question, you, you talked about the habitual nature of some, some sins. We know from other passages of Scripture that there's such a thing as a besetting sin or something that a Christian will struggle with throughout life. I would not want to lie to anyone and say that the moment you come to Christ, immediately all the sins that you've ever committed are no longer struggles for you or battles for you. It's the opposite. In fact, they become battles at conversion. Yeah. So if you're struggling with sexual immorality, have the question I would ask is, have you repented of that sin? Or are you simply living in it, doing it, engaging in it, and not caring about it? If that is the condition, the Bible seems to clearly teach that it's more likely you're in the camp of the child of disobedience. But today you can come to Christ and see all your sins forgiven and have them paid for by Christ. But if you're a Christian, you've repented of that sin. There, there's been a desire, a conviction to get rid of it. You have, but you struggle with it next week. That's not what Paul's referring to here. You will struggle with some sins on a daily basis. Mm -hmm. But it's a matter of have you repented of that sin? Have you confessed of that sin? Is there a genuine turn of your heart from sin to trust Christ? And if so, Paul would say... Remember, the wrath of God comes upon the children of disobedience for those sins, so refrain from them because Christ has set you free. Yep, and just to put a simple example, like if we're talking about porn, for example, think about these two types of people. Like if all of a sudden you're home, your parents left to go to the store, your sister or brother or whatever still at work or in school, and you're like, okay, nobody's home, let's go to the internet, type it in, and let's do my thing, right? That to me speaks a person that will not inherit the kingdom of God versus the person that's put in the same situation has this internal battles like, I don't want to do it. I I'm called to do it. It's like sweaty palms, your heart's racing. 
it's like because you've been living it for so long, but you've repented and now you don't want to do it. But Satan's just like pulling you saying, oh, it's okay. Just do it. You've done it before. You know, you'll do it again. And you just ask Christ for forgiveness. Everything will be fine. You know, like I think that person, that's where the struggle comes in. Like that, it seems like that person is saved and he's going through the process of sanctification where he's battling the sin to try to overcome it and move forward. Hmm. Am I understanding that correctly? I believe so. Okay. I'll be very careful to to diagnose every specific situation in a way that Scripture doesn't diagnose it. Mm -hmm. Paul clearly says, if you are living in unrepentant sin, mm -hmm. let's even just use a, an example outside of this. If you declare a homosexual identity and say that Christ has saved you and you have no desire to repent of that sin, your identity still is in this category of child of disobedience. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Makes sense. Christ says, come to me, come to me, my burden is light, but you come to him on his terms, not on yours. Mm -hmm. And capping it off with verse 7, I think it goes very well with what you're talking about, Austin, because this entire passage up to this point, Paul is talking to believers. He's talking to people who are with Christ, who have repented, and he kind of caps this little passage off with, therefore, do not be, part be partakers with them. Speaking about those sons of disobedience, understand that you as a believer, there should be a difference between you and the world. There should be a sense of, of understanding that I was bought with the blood of Christ, that I am not to, not to be prideful, but I am worth more. Like I, I am saved by the blood of Christ and, and I have a home in heaven. And you should have that understanding that I am not to partake with them. I'm not to do what they do. And even verse... Uh, verse 5, I like the way he starts it with, he brings up verse 3 and 4, these these sinful issues, and then he starts verse 5 with, for this you know. Like, you already know this, guys. Like, yeah. this isn't, I'm not teaching you here. You know that this is wrong. What I'm telling you here is you're you're better than that. You're bought by Christ. You You don't adhere to what this world does. You don't follow the sons of disobedience. You follow Jesus. And so you should be different. You should abstain from these issues. And you should have, like you guys were saying, like there should be that battle inside of you. And I, I'm, to me, this is a, a message of encouragement, if anything, that if you are battling with something like this, this is something that is openly brought up in Scripture. Like this is not a secret. It's not like Alex said, we need to stop hiding these things. We need to stop acting like this is not a reality when it is. It's something that mankind has struggled with since the creation of mankind. Like we need to understand that this is a very real battle that a lot of believers fight. And we need to be encouraged with the fact that we can overcome it. Like there is that possibility. And even Paul here, he does separate us. He doesn't bunch us in with the sinners, which to me is encouraging because during those really disgusting moments, you do feel like that. You feel like I just threw everything away. Like I just, I, I had it all. And, and one, one moment just ruins it all for me. And, and here Paul does make that distinction that, no, you messed up. Yes, your job is to get up, brush it off, ask God for forgiveness, move forward, and keep battling. Yeah, and um, just one last thing I wanted to add. Also, a deception can, can come, and empty words can come from somebody saying to you, and, and I, I kind of learned this myself, and I'm going to word this very carefully, but if you let your assurance of salvation be the 
end goal and and you're assured that you're saved and you're thinking, ah, well, I'm saved. What's what's the big deal if I'm battling this sin? Know that there is persistence, right? There is an addiction. And so when you're falling to it, when you're falling to to sexual immorality, especially in your life, and you're addicted to it, you're not repentant of it, you shouldn't be thinking in your head, well, I'm saved, so I'm good, right? You can't let the assurance of salvation, how do I say this, cover cover your sins to where you think you can just continue sinning. It has to be Shall a Shall we battle. continue in sin that grace may abound? It's yeah. not your jail, get out of jail free card. It is not. Maybe. It is not by any means because you have to think about who you are then, right? Who, who am I then if I'm a fornicator? Right. Am I headed to kingdom of Christ? Um, or or am I just telling myself, I'm, I'm fine, I'm good. I'm, I don't have to worry about anything. And so um, also a very difficult thing to kind of right, wrap in your brain. And so, cause, cause you might meet somebody who, who, who can tell you, oh yeah, I battle that sin too, but, um, you know, we're saved. So we're good. Eternally saved. Don't worry about it. You know, what if you run into somebody like that, that tells you that it's deception. Let me close with this. Jesus Christ died for sexual sinners. Yeah. The father chose to send Jesus to die for fornicators and adulterers. The Holy Spirit now indwells former fornicators, former adulterers, and we are new men and women in Christ Jesus. Because of that, because your assurance is in Christ and not in yourself, therefore imitate God as dear children. Like a child imitates his father, imitate God as a dear child and walk in love. As Christ has also loved us, and has sacrificed himself for us as a sweet-smelling savor, a sacrifice to God, so we ought to walk in love as well. Amen. Amen. You can close in prayer for us, Austin? Yes. Father, I thank you for our time of conversation this evening. Lord, I just pray for everyone listening right now. My heart goes out to, first of all, the true Christian who is broken and convicted over sin and is maybe tempted toward doubt in this moment. Would you, first of all, through the power of your Holy Spirit, convince them of their salvation because that salvation is in your son, Jesus, not in and of themselves. They were not saved by sexual purity of their own. They were saved by the sexual purity of your son. So I pray that you'll give them first an assurance of that salvation, and second, would you help them to remove the sin that so easily besets them? May they get help. May they talk to a pastor or talk to a trusted friend today and get the help that they so desperately need. Lord, I pray for the one who's listening, who's convicted right now, but honestly enjoys sexual sin and has no desire to give it up. Lord, would you, through the power of your Holy Spirit, open their eyes to see the glory of Christ and their need for him. And Lord, would you help us as Christians to walk in love? It's so difficult, Lord. We fail so many ways, but may that motivation not be anything else but imitating you as dear children. We love you and we thank you for your grace. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you for joining us today. We hope God was able to reach your heart so now you can go and share it with others. Feel free to leave any questions, prayer requests, or blessings. 
Join us on Instagram and share our podcast to others. And remember, always keep your heart in Scripture.